0: Let's pray together. Father, we are indeed looking forward to the day when love's purest joys are restored. And we acknowledge now, in the meantime, that we will groan. And we are groaning under the suffering of all of creation and waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. But we have a hope within us, the very hope of glory. And we understand that you are one day going to make all things new. So, Father, as we grieve now that we are scattered, and we are not together, Father, we know that you are with us and that you will never leave us or forsake us. So as we open your word to hear from you, Lord, we pray again that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And, Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we began the year 2020, I don't think that any of us would have predicted that in less than three months, our entire nation would be upended by a plague. Even, indeed, the entire world has been upended by a plague. COVID 19 has not proven to be the deadliest of illnesses that we've ever seen before in the world, but it certainly has been one of the most fastest spreading. In fact, in places where it's unchecked, the number of infections seems to double every two or three days. The epicenter of the pandemic recently shifted from China to Italy. Italy has a fraction of the population of China and has about uh, half. As many cases of the coronavirus in that country, and yet they have more people who have died from the virus than any other nation in the world, including China. As a result of, uh, of that, Italy's entire population has been on lockdown as their health system has been overwhelmed by people infected with the novel coronavirus. So we, as we gather, as we think about them this morning, we need to pray for Italy They have more people in need of life saving medical care than they have hospital beds right now. Some people are simply going without treatment because there are not enough resources, so we should pray for them. Thankfully, things have not gotten that bad here in the United States yet, and we're all hoping and praying that they never will. Nevertheless, we do need to remember that there's already a surge in New York City, in in their hospitals, and health workers there are reporting shortages of equipment, especially personal protective equipment for medical personnel that they need in order to keep from getting sick as they are trying to treat patients. A similar situation seems to be unfolding in California. But to prevent this from happening elsewhere, states around the country have adopted extreme social distancing measures. So even in this room, we have kind of a skeletal crew here. Uh, Me, Jim, Matt, a couple of guys running the board, uh, a smattering of of other folks, my family included. But we're all social distancing right now. And we've adopted, just as as an an entire nation, these uh, extreme measures. Schools are closed for the foreseeable future. Many businesses have closed. We have all been told to stay home whenever possible and not to gather in groups more than 10. So that's why we are here right now with hardly anyone in the room. And that's why so many of you are at home right now instead of here. But it's also why so many of you have been struggling over the last week. Just to be really blunt about it, many of you have been experiencing fear and dread at the consequences of what this pandemic mean. Fear and dread at the possibility of con- contracting COVID-19 or of being hospitalized, maybe um, perhaps even fear and dread of dying. Some of you are fearful about elderly family members or other loved ones with compromised immune, immune systems. But even if you aren't afraid of the coronavirus virus for health reasons, Many of you are certainly worried for financial reasons. As businesses close, jobs have been disappearing. Many people in our church, as Jim already mentioned, have already lost their jobs or at least have been cut back in the hours that they work. People don't know where their next paycheck is coming from, and so they're understandably anxious about this. And as if all this weren't bad enough, the one place that we all go every week to get ourselves and our anxieties sorted out, the church, we can't even go there because gathering would put too many people's lives at risk. So the one thing that might offer us comfort, gathering with God's people, that seems to have been taken away as well for a time. And so the pressing question that, we all are facing this morning as we come to God's word is this, how are we going to hold up under these tremendous burdens and uncertainties? Are we going to let a flood of fear and anxiety wash over us and carry us away into a really dark place? Or will we find Christ sufficient enough For us in our distress. Now, the difference between the former and the latter is the difference between faithfulness and sin. It's the difference between comfort and affliction. It's the difference between depression and hope. In other words, the difference between fear and faith is all the difference in the world. And the question before us is how do we lay hold of faith without being carried away? By fear, and the answer to that question is really simply this. If you want to find the path of faith and hope and light and goodness and avoid the path of fear and depression and darkness, then you are going to have to find your comfort in Jesus. Jesus is offering all of us comfort this morning. It's yours for the taking if you will have it. If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to focus in on verses 1 through 7. The central theme of 2 Corinthians is the relationship between the suffering and the the power of the Spirit in Paul's apostolic life and his ministry and his message. You may remember when we finished 1 Corinthians at the very end that Paul told the Corinthians that he intended to return to Corinth after he had traveled through Macedonia there in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. But after Paul heard, he had received news about the Corinthians that there was turmoil in the church. And after he heard about that, he decided to go directly to Corinth instead. When he got there, things apparently did not go very well. Apparently, some people from outside of the church had come into the church and had incited the congregation against Paul. And so now Paul's authority was being questioned at Corinth. And so Paul's visit to them turned out to be a very painful visit because of the church's open rebellion against Paul. As a result of this, after Paul went back to Ephesus, Paul wrote them another letter but this letter that he wrote to them was both tearful and severe and warned the congregation of God's judgment if they failed to repent. And so the more, apparently the majority of them did in fact repent, but a minority had not repented. And so Paul writes this letter, 2 Corinthians, in light of this conflict and in anticipation of his upcoming and third visit to Corinth. So when you read through 2 Corinthians, it's no surprise that 2 Corinthians is the most personal of all of Paul's letters. He talks at great length about his own suffering and about how God led him to face that suffering. And he begins on that very theme of suffering and affliction right here in the very first passage. So as we look at verses 1 through 7, we can divide this passage into three parts, and here they are. We see, first of all, the apostles calling in verses one through two, the apostles comfort in verses three to five, and the apostles hope in verses six through seven. So the apostles calling, the apostles comfort, and the apostles hope. The first thing is this, the apostles calling. Everybody look at verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Now, in many ways, these first two verses are simply reflecting how people began letters back in the uh, ancient Greco-Roman world. The author would name himself, and then he would name the party that he's writing to, and then finally he would offer a greeting. That's how you would start a letter in those days. Nevertheless, Paul's custom when he wrote letters was a little bit different from this because Paul would uh, would, um, frequently expand this opening formula for his own purposes. And he certainly does that here in order to remind the Corinthians of who he is and of who they are. And so he says, Paul, he names himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, which means that Paul has a unique authority. In Corinth and in every church. An authority that cannot be matched by any of the false teachers that have been opposing Paul in Corinth. For an apostle to have um, authority means that they had inherited this or been decreed this directly by Jesus. Because an apostle had to have two characteristics. First, an apostle had to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus And of course, Paul had such an experience when Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. The second characteristic that an apostle had to have was that they had to have been appointed directly by Jesus for a ministry of proclamation. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus did with Paul on the road to Damascus. And you can read in Acts chapter 26 in verse 16 what Jesus said to Paul. He said, I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen and to those in which will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. After Jesus arrested Paul on the road to Damascus, he appears to another disciple named Ananias in a vision, and Jesus himself describes his calling on Paul's life. He says in Acts chapter nine and verse fifteen, "He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of is- and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer." For the sake of my name. Paul describes his own experience in this way in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15. But when he who had set me apart from uh, before I was born. And who called me by his grace. When he was pleased to reveal his son to me. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. And so that's who Paul is. He has been sent out and authorized by Jesus himself, which means nobody can gainsay Paul unless they want to be gainsaying the one who sent him, Jesus. That's who Paul is. But who are his readers? Well, he addresses them clearly in verse 1 as the church of God, which is just another way of saying they are the congregation of God. They are a group of people that God has assembled together for himself And they are, therefore, very much God's own possession. They have been assembled in the city of Corinth, which was located in the southern part of what we know of today as Greece, and which in that time was a booming port city. Paul also includes Achaia in the address, and Achaia was simply the Roman province of which Corinth was a part, which probably suggests that the faith was spreading beyond Corinth, But look what he says in verse two. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, typically a letter like this might open with just a simple greetings. But Paul, again, is expanding this for his own purposes. And he adapts this introduction. And where you would look for typically a word like greetings, he says grace and peace. The source of all grace and peace, he says, is the one God who is the Father of Jesus Christ. But the point of all of this opening bit is to verify that they are in fact God's people and Paul is God's chosen mouthpiece to bring his word to them. No other teacher or leader who emerges in Corinth, no matter where they come from, would ever be able to outrank Paul's authority. Jesus has specially instructed and invested Paul to bear his name before the Gentiles. Therefore, the Corinthians can rely on Paul for true and accurate information about what it means to follow Jesus. And with so many other false teachers whispering in their ears, that is exactly what the Corinthians needed to hear. Because truth leads to Christ, but error leads to destruction. And Paul is bringing them truth. How many of you have noticed a good bit of false information about the coronavirus floating around the internet over the last couple of weeks? I think anxiety and fear seem to make fertile ground for false information to take root and to grow. And social media, sadly, only amplifies that. The Associated Press published a list of um, claims that have been going around that have been proven to be false claims this last week, and I'm going to share with you a couple of these. Here's claim number one that's proved to be false, Um, and it's a quotation here. Please be advised that within 48 to 72 hours, the president will evoke what's called the Stafford Act. The president will order a two-week mandatory quarantine for the nation. The National Guard will mobilize and martial law will go into effect. Stock up on whatever you need to make sure you have an adequate supply of everything, end quote. Claim's not true. Um, the president is not declaring martial law. No, he's not preventing citizens from going to the stores. But that false claim is nevertheless a highly destructive claim in that it encourages panic. It also scares people into buying up toilet paper. All the toilet paper in a city and other more necessary supplies. But it's actually a fiction. Here's another claim. Quote, using a blow dryer to shoot hot air into your sinuses will kill, kill the new coronavirus. End quote. No, actually, it won't. And yet there's a six minute video going around social media right now saying that it will. Again, the false information isn't benign. Depending on how hot the blow dryer is, somebody could actually hurt themselves doing this. Here's a third claim. This is one that I heard myself or read somewhere on the internet. The claim is this. Coronavirus remains in the throat for four days. Drinking water and gargling with warm water mixed with salt or vinegar eliminates the virus. Actually, scientists say there's no actual proof that that is the case. But what is true is that someone who's infected might take false security in that cure and then go around and spread the disease to other people. The false information is destructive. It's not benign. And there's false information like that all over the place. It can cause people to behave in destructive ways. If you are going to make it through this time, you can't be getting your information from random people on Facebook or Twitter. You need reliable medical authorities, perhaps like the CDC. If you want to separate truth from fiction to distinguish life-saving behavior from life-destroying behavior, you need a source with authority and truth. Absent that, you become subject to panic and to fear. And so this is what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians. It's this kind of thing. And it's what he's trying to communicate to us. If we're going to make our way through uncertain times, we can't give ourselves over to the people who are fabricating things. People like today who are fabricating cures just to generate clicks on the internet. We can't be giving ourselves over to the messages of people who are so panicked themselves that they cannot even see how destructive they are being in the false information that they peddle. We have to have a reliable source. But in this case, the truth is, we can't go to the CDC for reliable information. They have lots of reliable information, but we can't go to them for reliable information about what God thinks about all of this. There's some things that they're authoritative on, but when it comes to what God thinks, we can't go... To them, that's why more than anything else, we need to hear from someone who has heard from Jesus. We need to hear a word that connects us to Jesus and to the grace and peace that only he offers. If you try to find grace and peace from fabricators, you are going to get swept away in the panic. And you are not going to get connected to the comfort that only Jesus can offer. So Paul is telling us, I've been with Jesus. Jesus sent me to you with his message. Listen to me. Listen to me. I have heard from him and he has authorized me to speak to you. You need these words because they are the words of Jesus. If you are going to make it through today and all the days ahead, you have got to give yourself over to this word. And not just the words of the Apostle Paul, but the words of all of Jesus's authorized mouthpieces. And their words have been written down for us in this book. This is God's word. There is no other. It is the ultimate authority on everything you need for life and godliness, including life and godliness in the midst of a pandemic. Give yourself over to this word. Seek this word, pursue this word, hide it in your heart and don't let it go even when the fabricators are trying to lure you away. Now you think about this for a second. We are not the first generation that has ever endured a pandemic or a plague. There have been generations of believers before us who didn't have this word sitting on their shelf. They lived in cultures that didn't have books, People owned books, and they were clinging to the word of Christ that they heard when they gathered. We aren't able to gather, but you know what? We have this book. Many of you have multiple books like this at your home. We've got this technology now where I'm preaching this word to you. It's unbelievable. You have got to avail yourself of the means of grace that are available to you while we are apart. Don't let go. So, Paul talks about his calling in verses one through two. But in verses three through five, Paul talks about his comfort. This is the apostles' comfort. Everybody, look at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Verse three is an exclamation of praise that focuses on the first two persons of the Trinity. The father and the son. In one sense, the father is the source of the eternally begotten son. In another sense, the father is the source of mercies and comfort. Mercy is a term that reflects care and concern over another person's misfortune. It means something like pity or compassion. In the singular, it's a character trait. So if you read Colossians 3.12, for example, Paul says, put on a heart of compassion. It's It's a character trait in the singular, but often when it's used in the plural, as it is here in our text, it tends to refer to the expression of mercy or the concrete forms that mercy takes in one person's action toward another. So if somebody says that my wife, Susan, is merciful, they're talking about a character trait. But if I say my wife Susan has shown me many mercies over the years, you know what I'm talking about now. I'm talking about specific acts of kindness that she has done for me when I couldn't care for myself or perhaps when I didn't deserve it. A few weeks ago, I got the flu and it came over me one morning like a flood and I felt awful. And at our home, whenever there's a flu in the house, we're pretty strict quarantine people. Um, we We put the sick person in a separate room and nobody else goes into that room. I was feeling awful. I didn't feel like moving all of my stuff out of our bedroom into some other room. Instead, my wife had mercy on me and she got all of her things and moved them out of our master bedroom into one of the children's rooms. While I was sick, I couldn't get around the house and fix my own food. No, Susan showed mercy to me and brought me food up and down the stairs, over and over. Every time I requested something, she was bringing it to me. Mercy after mercy after mercy. In the same way, to call God the father of mercies is to call attention to the concrete ways he expresses mercy towards his people. So, for example, the same word is used in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, to which mercies is Paul referring? Well, in that text, he's referring to all of the mercies of God spelled out in Romans chapters 1 through 11. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God sends his only son for us to save us. Mercy. Romans 2.4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Mercy. Romans 3.25, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Mercy, and it just goes on and on, one mercy after another. Justification by faith, sanctification through the Spirit, the hope of glory in the face of death. Blessings all mine and 10,000 besides. All of it, God's gracious, concrete acts of mercy toward us through Christ. Lamentations 3 says it this way. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Mercy after mercy after mercy we have received from God. And we deserve none of it, and yet God offers it anyway. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. The father of mercies. And perhaps chief among those mercies is what he says next. That he is the God of all comfort. He is the one who lifts our spirits and provides consolation for us when we are sorrowful sorrowful or suffering. The same God who saved us from our sin and from judgment is the God who cares for us even now, who promises to stay with us and never leave us no matter what happens. He comforts us and provides for us and never leaves us without recourse to him. Why does God do this? The mercies and comfort flowing from God to his people are not a reflection of what we deserve. So just put that out of your mind. You're not going to deserve this ever, okay? You can't ever deserve this. The mercies and comfort that he offers to us are a reflection of his own nature and character. He is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And the only proper response to experiencing the mercies and the comfort of God is to worship him, to render thanks and praise to him, for he alone is worthy of it. And that's what Paul is doing right here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. But look in verse 4 because he specifies what he means who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, when Paul says that God comforts us in all our affliction, we need to think about who, he, who, this, who these first-person plural group of people is. He's not talking about himself and his readers. He's not talking about himself and us. He's talking about himself and, he, and perhaps his other fellow workers like Timothy and Titus who were mentioned later. but he's certainly mainly talking about himself and anybody who was with him in his experiences when he says we." And so he's confirming and he's confirming what's happened to him in his experiences as an apostle out in the remotest part of the earth, preaching the gospel. And he's confirming that his experience has included a great deal of affliction. All you have to do is open up the book of Acts to see how much Paul was afflicted for the sake of Christ. He was persecuted from city to city. He was stoned and left for dead in one place. He was falsely accused and arrested. He was subject to the lash, he says later on in this book. He talks about being viciously whipped for preaching the gospel. Later in this letter, he talks about a thorn in his flesh, some sort of apparently chronic bodily illness that he asked the Lord to take away, but the Lord would not take it away. He was an afflicted man, and yet he mentions this Fact about himself, not as though it were a surprise. And it's because it's not. Jesus Himself had has told us, and in fact, Jesus said, remember what he said to Ananias, I will show him how much he much he must suffer for my sake. So this is not a surprise that he is afflicted or that even we would be afflicted, because Jesus told us to expect this. Paul says it this way elsewhere in Philippians chapter 1. In verses 29 to 30, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul understands that affliction is not only his lot in life, but it's the lot of everyone who chooses to follow Christ. This has been ordained by the sovereign will of God. Paul even says this. When he strengthened the souls of believers in the book of Acts, it says says that he told them through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God in Acts chapter 14 verse 22. Christianity is not a religion that anticipates health, wealth, and prosperity for all of its adherents. Christianity is a religion that anticipates suffering for all of its adherents. That's why we're not surprised when plagues fall on an entire nation. Nor are we surprised when some Christians are called to bear some of that suffering. We aren't exempted from the groanings of a cursed creation. We are groaning right along with everyone else. We all experience the groanings of plague and of sword and of poverty and sickness. But what Paul wants us to understand is that what he has found in all of his experiences of these things is something that we can find in our experiences of these things. Look at verse four. He says, God comforts us in all our affliction. Not one time did God leave Paul hanging not one time did God leave Paul to face his own suffering alone in every single instance God comforted Paul in his affliction that means that in every single instance God offers comfort to you in your affliction there is no plague or poverty, or war, or persecution, or sickness that God is just going to leave you to to sort out for yourself. He is going to be there with you and walk through the valley of the shadow of death with you, and he offers you the strength and the power to endure it for his sake. Why does he do this? Well, This is remarkable. Look at verse 4 again. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. The comfort with which we ourselves are being comforted by God. This is incredible, but it's true. God comforts you so that you will praise him and so that you will be able to commiserate with and comfort other sufferers. He wants you to find him in your suffering so that you can lead others to him in their suffering. The comfort that flows from God through you is designed so that it will flow out of you in praise for God and comfort For other people who are groaning, fear and anxiety don't serve your neighbor. They don't serve your suffering neighbors. Only comforted saints, happy and joyful in their God, can serve their neighbors and people who are suffering. Many of whom right now are feeling very desperate. You know what that means? It means that you have to make it your aim every day to receive the comfort that God offers you. It means that when the specter of death bears its ugly teeth at you, by faith, you have to lay hold of God's mercies toward you. To believe Jesus when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus has us. He's not going to let go of us. And there is nothing in this world, no plague nor anything, that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 says, For as we share abundantly in the sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Christ suffered, that means we're going to suffer too if we belong to him. We aren't exempt. The servant is not greater than his master, Jesus taught us. But Jesus is offering more abundant comfort to us in all of our affliction. So when one of you comes to me or right now maybe calls me and you say to me that you're anxious and fearful about a health scare or about a job scare or about a relationship scare or about a pandemic scare or something like that, I just want you to know that the first thing that comes into my mind when you tell me that is not, wow, they sure have weak faith. I wish they'd get their act together. That's not what I'm thinking. That's not even in the vicinity of what Denny Burke is thinking when you tell me that. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking I've been there. I have felt that. I remember every bit of those feelings. And if God isn't my joy and comfort, I will be feeling that again very soon. In other words, the first thing I feel is compassion. Because I've been there. There have been two times in my life in which waves of anxiety and maybe even depression, I'm I'm not sure, where they upended me. The first time was when, when I was in college. The second time was about 15 years ago when I had just begun my teaching career and I had received a strange test result from the doctor related to my liver. And for some reason, that ambiguous test result sent me into a rabbit hole of anxiety and fear about my own life and health. I was obsessing over it. I couldn't make it stop. Fears were just sort of flooding in and crowding out every other thought. And I know that I must have been an absolute emotional drain on my wife during all of that. And yet she was so merciful to me I remember one night being so completely overwhelmed by anxiety so much so that I couldn't even sleep Susan is fast asleep. I'm laying beside her wide awake feeling desperate. So I wake her up And I just pour my heart out The middle of the night She's exhausted. She doesn't complain She listens to the whole rambling thing And then you know what she does? She does what she does. She starts singing. Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help, it comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He who will not let my foot be moved. He who keeps me will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is the shade on my right hand. The sun shall not hurt thee by day nor the moon by night. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is the shade on my right hand. The Lord is my keeper from this time forth and forevermore. And she sings right there in the middle of the night in the darkness. You know what she was doing? She was comforting me She was comforting me with the comfort with which she had been comforted by God. And it was like the sweet psalmist of Israel driving out the evil spirits. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We've got to reach for those songs. We've got to reach for those songs right now. And we've got to find those songs for each other right now. So, when you tell me that all this business of the last few weeks has brought in a darkness over your heart and mind that will not lift, and that you're feeling scared and you're feeling anxious, I'm not disappointed in you or upset by you or surprised by you. I'm like you. I've been there. I can bear witness that I've been comforted by Christ. He didn't leave me there. And all I want you to know is that he's not going to leave you there either. I want you to know the comfort with which I have been comforted by God. And which I right now am trying to lay hold of. Fifteen years ago, God was preparing me for this moment. And he's preparing you for a moment 15 years from now in someone else's life. And he's doing it so that the comfort will flow through you and turn into praise. This is how God works among us. He brings his comfort to sufferers by means of comforted sufferers. So we all need to embrace this and to understand that of the thousands of good things, I can't imagine all the things that God is doing through this pandemic right now. I know he's doing countless things that we can't see with our eyes, but I am confident that this is one of the things that he is doing through this. One of the things that he wants to accomplish through us is for us to find our comfort in Christ, for that comfort to turn into praise, and for that comfort to go to fellow sufferers. God is doing that right now. So Paul talks about his calling. He talks about his comfort. And finally, he talks about his hope. Everybody look at verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. This is Paul telling the Corinthians why he was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It was for all of their comfort and salvation. And Paul did suffer. Even even when he first came to Corinth. Go back and look at Acts chapter 18. When he first evangelized in Corinth, he suffered. In fact, he became so terrified by the opposition that he was facing in Corinth. He wanted to leave. He wanted to do what he normally does. He, he wanted to leave. And so Jesus had to appear to him in a vision and tell him not to do what he normally does. Instead, Jesus says in Acts chapter 19 and verses 9 through 11, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have, had, I have many people in this city who are my people. You know why Paul stayed when he was afflicted in Corinth? Because Jesus showed up and comforted him and commanded him. And also it was for their comfort and salvation. And when they see Paul comforted by Christ in Paul's affliction, that too is for the Corinthians' comfort in their affliction. Because now they too are experiencing the same conflicts That they've witnessed in Paul. And so Paul says in verse seven, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. In spite of all the conflict he's had with the Corinthians, he doesn't think they're hopeless. On the contrary, his hope for them is absolutely unshakable, he says, because they're proving their mettle by being willing to suffer for Christ. And he knows that as they are willing to suffer, Christ is also willing to show up for them and to comfort them just like he did for Paul. If we want to have courage and if we want to bear faithful witness to Christ in the days ahead, we are going to have to strengthen one another's hands to trust in Christ and to trust in his word. We're going to need to turn from panic and from the fear that wants to swallow us up and that's swallowing so so many people up around us. We have to turn from that. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 1 John four eighteen. perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You know, anxiety is a vice. Anxiety drives out love and joy and peace and patience and all the other fruit of the Spirit. That are supposed to be flowing out of you and flowing in comfort to other people. Anxiety makes all that stuff disappear. It makes you self-focused. That's why it is our duty to oppose fear with all of our might when it comes upon us. How do we oppose it? What can we do? I want to suggest one really practical thing that... We all need to do. It's what Paul says in Philippians 4 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Did you get that? That's a command. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is such a merciful word from God for us. Because anybody that's ever experienced fear or anxiety knows that you can't just say, okay, no fear, and then it just disappears. It sometimes feels very intractable. It sometimes feels like the darkness will not lift. That's what it feels like. And so he doesn't just say, don't be anxious. He says what you're supposed to do to drive the darkness away. What does he say? He gives us the means that God intends for us to fight fear. He says, let your requests be made known to God. In short, pray. You cry out to God in humble dependence. Are you terrified about the future? Then you make your request known to God. You ask him to care for your future. Are you terrified about pandemic? You ask him to take it away and you ask him to have mercy on you until he does. Are you scared of dying? Then you ask God to save you and you make your request known. You say, well, I still feel, I still feel fear. Then you keep praying. You keep doing it. You make your request known. And the very act of crying out to God, you will find eventually is an act of faith. The weaker you are and the louder you cry, the more your dependence upon God becomes manifest. And then pretty soon you'll find yourself, I am depending on him. He is sufficient for me. He is sufficient for this moment. And you'll find that it's not about your strength, but about his. And when you have done this, the next part of the text will come true. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm praying for you, brothers and sisters. All the elders are praying for you. You pray for me. You pray for us. And let's pray for our neighbors. And let's pray for For opportunities to comfort them with the comfort with which we have been comforted by God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would use your word to sanctify your people. Father, I pray that you would swoop into living rooms, into homes, and apartments nursing homes, sweep in to the places where your people are right now and blow the darkness away. Let your people know that you love them and that you care for them and that you're with them. Let them know the truth. Help us not to be carried away by the lies as if you have left us and won't be with us. Let your people hear the truth. Let them be comforted by the fact that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if God, you haven't withheld your son from us, how will you withhold from us any other good thing that we need? Father, you are the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I pray for you to bring it to your people now. In Jesus' name, amen.